This morning, uh, we looked at Samuel and his call uh, to become a prophet of God who was known from Dan even to Beersheba, who everyone came to know that when he spoke, you could pretty much guarantee that God was the one behind it. Not one of his words failed and the Lord was with him. We saw that he started from relatively humble beginnings as someone who helped work in the temple or the tabernacle and that uh, he was uh, under the, the leadership and the guidance of Eli. But then eventually he grew to be someone who everyone came to know who Samuel was, even as Eli and his family kind of fell to the wayside. In essence, there was a, a replacing that took place. Um, and we talked about that as being a transition and how there's several of these transitions that take place in the book of 1 Samuel and in the ministry of Samuel, whether it's from Eli's household to Samuel being the, the final judge of Israel, or whether it's from the idea of God being king to Israel choosing their own king. That's one of the, the difficulties that Samuel has to endure because Samuel comes to realize that the people want to be like all the nations around them. And so they are rejecting Samuel, in essence, from being their leader. But when Samuel talks about this with God, God says, it's not you they're rejecting, Samuel. It's me that they're rejecting. They want to be like the kings all around them. And they end up getting their way. And when they get their way, you come to find out that uh, these kings that they had in mind they really are like all the kings around them. And no matter how much you want them to be representatives of Yahweh and how much you want them to, to make the law something that's on people's hearts and lips day after day, the kings don't do a very good job of doing that. They tend to amass for themselves large armies and they tend to uh, make their own names great rather than the Lord's name great. And they tend to take many wives for themselves and they uh, end up acting just like all of the ruthless people around them. You have Saul who spends his life uh, trying to kill David and you have like all of these things that end up happening and uh, even Solomon, David's son. He, in Deuteronomy 17, there is a passage that is very detailed in what kings are not supposed to do. And then when you look at the reign of King Solomon, it's like one by one, he does every single one of them. Those are, that's what kings do. And that becomes a template for what all future kings do. And so the kings don't end up bringing a lot of peace and harmony in Israel. But the first king that was chosen is a guy from the tribe of Benjamin, and his name is Saul. Uh, now, when you think of the kings of Israel, and you think of like Jesus being king of kings from the royal line, they're from the tribe of Judah. Uh, but the first king is actually from the tribe of Benjamin. But then David and all the kings after him from, uh, you know, the southern Judah, they're going to be from the tribe of Judah. And so that's another transition that happens there. From Saul to David, from Benjamin to Judah, there's a transition that takes place. And what we're going to do in our lesson this evening is look a little bit about what led to that transition. There's a really interesting story that comes about in 1 Samuel chapter 13. So Saul has become king. And Saul, Saul's a tragic figure, I think, as I read through uh, the book of 1 Samuel, because Saul is someone who really did, he started off, it seems like, with great promise. By the way, David's kind of a tragic figure, too, and, and even Solomon's kind of a tragic figure. It's like a lot of these guys started off a lot better than they finished. Uh, but with Saul, you have, he starts off, and he, he's not really asking to be king. As a matter of fact, when the lot falls on him and his family and his name to become king, they, they want to anoint him and they look around and they can't find him and he's off hiding uh, because that's not something he really asked for for himself. But when he finally stands up, the people recognize, oh, 
we got ourselves a good king right here. He stands head and shoulders above everybody else. One of the interesting themes that takes place in the book of, uh, of Samuel is if you meet a really tall person, be prepared for them to fall. Uh, whether it's Goliath, whether it's King Saul. Uh, there's a prayer early on from the lips of Hannah in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2, and she talks about that very thing, how the mighty will become weak, and those who think they are great will become uh, of naught. And, and that's an idea that, that takes place, you know, throughout the Bible, and I mean, you can see it first and foremost in the ministry of Jesus, where the first shall be least, and whoever wants to be great will be servant of all, and where the King of kings and Lord of lords is actually the one who is crucified on a Roman cross. It's like, what your picture of greatness is, God often transforms that. You see it in the book of Genesis a bunch when it comes to uh, birth order. It's like, you would think the firstborn son is supposed to be the one who's the royal heir, or the one through whom the family blessing flows, but God often chooses the, the secondborn. He, he often subverts human expectations. He does that with David also. Remember, when Samuel is sent to go find the replacement for King Saul, he goes to David's household and he's told, do not look at the man's outward appearance. God doesn't do that. God looks at the heart. Humans, they look at the outward appearance, and we really do. Um, there are studies that demonstrate how often we do this uh, when it comes to, you know, presidents of the United States or when it comes to uh, CEOs of Fortune 500 companies or when it comes to, like, applicants to different jobs. What the person looks like matters. Uh, height is one of those things that, that matters. Having hair is something that seems to matter. Um, when you look at presidents, uh, since, since the age of television, you don't find many baldies, you know, it's, a, it's one of my great woes in life. Uh, but uh, but you know, you, you, the, the thing I have going for me is uh, most, for, uh, not most, but if you look at the average uh, number of, of uh, Americans who are above six foot two, I believe it's something like close to 3% are six two or taller. But among CEOs, it's like 17%. If you look at six foot, the, you know, among Americans, I don't remember the exact numbers now, but it's something like eight or nine percent, something like that. But among CEOs, it's like close to 50%. And so what you see there is like there are things, even absolutely foolishly, because I got news for you, having hair and being tall have nothing to do with whether or not you make wise decisions and are a good leader. But they do tend to play into the role of just what we think of when we think of a good leader. And Israel does that same thing. When they see Saul, they think he has to be a great leader. And so when God is talking to uh, Samuel and he's going to uh, Jesse's household, and he's gonna choose King David, he says, don't look at the outward appearance. He ends up choosing the least born. He ends up choosing someone who doesn't seem to be all that tall. Uh, and yet he's the one who can defeat Goliath. He's the one who, even when the mightiest and tallest warrior in all the world stands before him, he can become victorious. That's a, that's a reversal that you see quite a bit. And so when Saul first appears, and you realize that he stands head and shoulders above everyone else, well, if you've read the whole book of, of, of 1 Samuel, if you see the way that God often works in these ways, you begin to realize that's not necessarily a good quality. Uh, that might not bode well for him. But he does start off well. He starts off with some military victories. He starts off with people's respect. He starts off even seemingly uh, humble. But little by little, you start to see that the leadership uh, puts a spiritual burden on him. 
being the ruler ends up meaning that his decisions matter a lot more than probably a human being's decisions should. I mean, could you, could you imagine being a king where everything you say is the most important thing that could be said? <laughs> it's hard to not let that affect you. It's, not, it's hard to, to have that kind of power and authority and not start to think, I should have this power and authority. My word matters. And, and, and it changes the way you view yourself. It changes the way you view other people. And anyone who begins to get in the way of that becomes an enemy. They become a threat to you because your power becomes the most important thing. So when David does start to become more famous, when people start to sing songs about David, it drives Saul crazy to the extent that someone who earlier in his life seems like a humble and, and God-fearing man is now trying to kill David because he knows what, uh, what God is doing. And by the way, it's not too long after David is king that he starts acting a lot like Saul. He starts seeing a woman bathing on a roof and he thinks, hey, I'd like to have her for myself. He has her husband killed because he stands in the way. And like all of these, all of these ways that kings act, that's what happens when human beings get that much power. You know, absolute power corrupts absolutely, as the saying goes. And, and you can see that play out. Once they say, yeah, God's an okay king, but we'd rather have a human being, these things get worse and worse and worse. So Saul, this is, this is the early stage. This is Saul where I think he's still practicing godliness. What, what I mean is he still cares about God, and he still is a God-fearer, and he still wants God to be on his side. But he's going to start taking some steps beyond what actually is the limit of his authority. He's going to see his limited authority and he's going to expand it just a little bit. And it's one of the first steps in this direction that will ultimately lead to his madness and ultimately lead to his murderous contempt for others and anyone who stands in his way. But it's one of the first steps where he starts to say, I know the right thing, but I have a good reason to do it my way instead of God's way, instead of Samuel's way. I have a good reason to start listening to myself instead of them. And as soon as he starts to do that, things start to spiral a lot more quickly out of control. So 1 Samuel chapter 13 is where our lesson is going to be. Um, one of the first things you see Saul doing as a king is, uh, you know, military uh, victories. He, he starts going into warfare against some of the neighbors and some of the enemies of Israel. In, uh, in chapter 11, he has some successful battles. Once you get to chapter 13, things start to shift a little bit. You see in chapter 11 that before these battles, the Spirit of God is with him, and the people are confident and ready to go out and to fight for him. When you get to chapter 13, you don't quite see that uh, nearly as clearly. In fact, you start to see the exact opposite. You start to see his armies are afraid. You start to see that they are trembling and hiding because of fear as they're about to go into battle with the Philistines. So let's read the first couple of verses. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 13 and verse 1. Saul was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 42 years in Israel. Now Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel, of which 2,000 were with Paul at Michmash and, uh, in the hill country of Bethel, while 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. But he sent away the rest of the people, each to his own tent. So 3,000 people, he divides up the troops. Um, verse 3, Jonathan smote the garrison of the Philistines, that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard about it. Then Saul blew a trumpet throughout the land, saying, 
let all the Hebrews hear. And so they have this relatively small victory with a small number of people, and he wants all Israel to hear about this great victory that they've just enjoyed over the Philistines. So the word spreads. You get to verse 4. All Israel heard the news that Saul had smitten the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become odious to the Philistines. And the people were uh, then summoned to Paul uh, to Saul at Gilgal. So, chapter starts off with a victory, uh, and then he wants the word to spread. Now, the Philistines are kind of mad about the victory, obviously, and all Israel begins to hear that, hey, we just, we just whipped up on a garrison of the Philistines. And so there's some, some confidence building, you would think, in King Saul. Okay, so what happens when, uh, I've seen this happen at like church camps before, where you have a battle between the different cabins, and, uh, you know, one cabin might prank the other cabin. They'll go in there and uh, they'll mess up the cabin, get someone's clothes and throw it out on the floor or something like that, make their cabin real messy. And then the cabin the next night thinks, we have to get back at them. So they go to that cabin and they don't just mess it up. What they do is they get their clothes and instead of throwing them on the floor, they throw them outside. And then the other cabin goes and they go and they grab the mattresses from their beds. And they go and they hide them somewhere. And all of a sudden, it's like with each new thing, it escalates and, and until the counselors say, knock it off. Uh, but, uh, but that tends to be what human beings do. We're not great at an eye for an eye. It's like, if you hurt my eye, yeah, I'll hurt your eye and I'll break your nose and bust out a tooth so that you learn never to hurt my eye again. Uh, and we think that you need to, to take things to the next level in order to really send a message, right? Well, the Philistines lost a battle. So guess what they do? You remember the numbers that we talked about a minute ago? Uh, 3,000, and he split them up between 2,000 and 1,000. Well, now look at the Philistines' response in verse 5. Now the Philistines assembled to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen, and people like the sand which is on the seashore in abundance. Okay, so now they're serious. Uh, this just got taken up a notch, and Israel finds itself vastly outnumbered by the Philistines who are now going to camp against them in preparation for battle. And Israel notices it. So when you get to verse 6, when the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble or they were in a, a bad situation for the people were hard pressed, then the people hid themselves in caves and thickets and cliffs and cellars and in pits. So Israel starts to go and hide in like any place they can find. They're hiding in bushes. They're hiding in caves. They're hiding in pits. Like they don't want to be seen. They don't want to be a part of this big battle that's now brewing. Uh, and so then you keep reading and you come to find out that Saul, who's supposed to be leading these people, has a tremendous leadership crisis on his hands now. How is he going to instill confidence in his people and get them ready for the battle when they're all terrified and worried and counting and they're hiding because of that? So you get to verse 7. It says, uh, so Also, some of the Hebrews crossed the Jordan into the land of Gad and Gilead. So some of them are like fleeing. And he says, But as for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. So the people who are still with him, they're terrified. Their knees are shaking. They're trembling at the idea of going into this battle. Verse 8 is where there's a little bit of a transition in the, in the, in the, uh, the story. So the first seven verses are setting the stage for a battle. And while it seems at first like, hey, everything's going great for Israel, things quickly turn. 
Now they're hiding, they're fleeing, they're trembling, everyone's terrified, and they don't know what the future is going to hold for them. And Saul is their king. He is their leader. He's tall and strong and mighty, and he's a great warrior, and he has to somehow instill confidence into his people so that they can be ready to overcome any foe that comes their way. There's no enemy that can stand against the armies of God, right? If God can overthrow the Egyptians, and if throughout the book of Judges, God could raise up judges time and time again to overthrow Israel's oppressors and enemies. If he could raise up Samson to destroy the Philistines, surely he can do it with these people now. And so he needs to get them confident. And one of the best ways to get people confident in victory is to have them know that God is with them. That's not a bad idea, Saul. Like, getting people to trust in God is actually a really good idea. And so Saul needs to get his people to understand that God is with them. So the next couple of verses go about demonstrating how he does that. How is he going to demonstrate that God is with his people? Um, a couple weeks ago, we gave a lesson looking at a, an earlier chapter in the book of 1 Samuel where something similar actually happened among Israel and the Philistines, where Israel was worried they were going to lose a battle, and they wanted to get God on their side. And so what they did was they got the Ark of the Covenant, which is not supposed to be brought into battle. Uh, they got the Ark of the Covenant, and they brought it to a battle with them against the Philistines thinking, oh, we're definitely going to win now. And they were all so excited, and they shouted with a great shout, so much so that the Philistines, when they heard it, they were afraid to go into battle. They were thinking, oh no, God is with them. They have their gods with them. How are we going to stand? But then they were told, you know what? No, don't be cowards. Don't be afraid. Act like men. We're going to fight them anyway. And they did. And you know what they did? They destroyed Israel, and they took their ark with them, and they brought their ark back with them to, to the Philistines. And you come to find out that God, the ark of the covenant's powerful, right? It's not powerful enough to win a battle with Israel's armies, uh, apparently, but it, by itself, among the Philistines, it's powerful enough to destroy each of those cities that it went to. And, and the point is that when Israel was misusing the ark, for their own gain, disobeying God to bring it into battle, God wasn't working for them. And so they were on their own and they lost. But then even without their armies, just the ark itself, as it goes into each of these Philistine cities, it knocks their gods over. Dagon, the, the god of the Philistines, falls over and eventually ends up getting broken. So the people are, uh, they don't step on the threshold even to this day because they knew uh, that God had demonstrated his power over their gods through the ark. And then all of a sudden the people start breaking out in tumors and plagues. So they take the ark and they send it to all the different cities. And every city it goes to, the people are plagued and tumored until they send it back to Israel with some golden frogs and golden tumors uh, with it as a gift saying, get this out of here because it's more powerful than us. The fascinating thing is God clearly was stronger than the Philistines. God could clearly handle them, yet Israel lost the battle when they brought the ark with them. Why? Well, they lost the battle because they had disobeyed God in service of getting God on their side. It's like they wanted to use God for their victory, and they disobeyed him to do it, which is never a good strategy. We're about to see Saul fall into that same trap. The armies of the Philistines are there. His people are terrified. They're starting to flee. They're hiding in caves. He, he knows that they're all trembling and scared. They're outnumbered. 
And he knows that God is powerful and that God can grant them the victory. I think he still cares about God at this point. But how can he get God on their side? Well, he wants Samuel to come and to bless them and to offer offerings up to God before the battle as a demonstration of of religious piety to get uh, the people to trust that God is with them. But there's a problem that has happened. Samuel was apparently supposed to come and hasn't come yet. And day after day passes, there was actually a time that they were supposed to meet, and Samuel missed the meeting. So you get to verse 8. This is where we find out what's, what's going on here. He says, Now Saul waited seven days, according to the appointed time by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So like, he, he was supposed to meet with Samuel, and Samuel didn't make it. And Samuel's the one who's supposed to offer the burnt offerings. And Samuel didn't come. And he's looking at his people, and they're fleeing. And he's looking at the Philistines, and they're growing. And he's thinking, I need God on my side, and I need him right now. So what's he going to do? Verse 9. So Saul said, bring to me the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offerings. Now Saul is a king. And with that comes some authority, right? But we've already talked about how kings have a tendency to see their own authority and then to expand it beyond the divine limits of that authority. Saul is not a priest. He is not the one who should be offering burnt offerings and sacrifices. He is not the one who should be uh, leading in the worship in that way. Yet what he does, because he has a legitimate need, is he takes for himself more authority than God ever gave him. He takes for himself more privilege than was ever bestowed upon him, and he begins to step out beyond the restrictions of what it means to be a king. Why? Well, because he had an important decision to make. He had a genuine crisis on his hands. He's trying to help the people, and if anyone can do it, surely he can. He's the king. You know, he's not going to ask someone else to, to go and do the offering. He, if anyone has the authority to step beyond the limits of what God has told them to do, surely it's him, right? And so he ends up taking that step, doing something he was not supposed to do in order to get God on their side. Um, Samuel was the one who was supposed to be doing that. Saul was supposed to trust in God, lead the people into battle, yet Saul finds himself with this terrible situation, so he does it anyway. And he seems to not think he's done anything that wrong. Um, at least you don't get that, that uh, idea from him. He seems to think what he did is completely justified. When you get to verse 10, it says, as soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And you think, oh, come on. <laughs> you know, he couldn't have come 10 minutes earlier, come an hour earlier. It, it's almost like the, the timing is playing a trick on Saul here. Uh, it's like, was Samuel just watching to see what he was going to do, you know, behind the tree over there? Uh, I don't think so. But, the, I, you know, it's like the timing works out uh, where if he just would have waited a little bit longer, Samuel would have got there. But he didn't wait that little bit longer. He took matters into his own hands right then and there. But still, Samuel comes and Saul goes out to meet him and to greet him uh, or to salute him or uh, to bless him. And uh, Samuel said, what have you done? It's almost like a parent who walks up and sees that their kid has colored all over the walls. And they say, wait a minute, what have you done? He walks up there and he sees the offering has been offered and he says, what have you done? And Saul gives 
a very reasonable explanation of what he did. Like, he covers all of his bases in this answer. I think if you're looking for a legitimate reason to do the wrong thing, you're not going to find a better one than Saul's answer. In verse uh, 11, Samuel says, what have you done? And Saul says, because I saw that the people were scattering from me, and they were. He saw his armies leaving for fear that that they were going to lose. He says, and that you did not come within the appointed days. Saul waited. He waited the seven appointed days. Like, he waited the amount of time he was supposed to wait. And that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, and I saw their army growing. It's like, I was in a terrible situation. All three of these things are big deals. My army's leaving, their army's growing, and you weren't here to do it. So therefore, in verse 12, therefore I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not asked the favor of the Lord. So we're thinking, like, they're going to come to war at me, and I haven't even asked God's favor to be on, on my army and be with my people. Like, he, he wants God's favor. He wants God on his side. So, and this is how he words it in verse 12, so I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. It's like, you get the impression that's not what he wanted to do. He wasn't just out looking to sin. But what did he do? He found himself in a really tough spot. He found himself with authority as the king, as the leader of the people, and beginning to think, how could I use my authority to bless these people? Well, I know what God wants, and I know what's beyond the the limits of my authority, but I also know what would really, really help. And so, it's one of his first steps to do it. And it's like the most justified thing you can read. But he ends up taking that step. He ends up going beyond the limits of what he's supposed to do. And sometimes that's what it takes. Sometimes all it takes is just that little, I have good reason for it. It's justified in my mind. Surely God sees that, that winning the battle is a bigger deal than, than uh, this one little rule about who's supposed to offer you know, offerings. And so he does it. And Samuel comes to talk to him about it. And what you'll see as you keep reading is once he takes that step, it becomes easier to take the next step and then the next step and then the next step, until Saul, in a couple of chapters, is almost unrecognizable. He's not the same person that he was. He has become so uh, focused on his own power and authority, his own name, his own kingdom, his own might, his own will, that he'll destroy anyone who gets in the way of that. He ends up uh, hating uh, David. He ends up hating his son's best friend. He ends up in the next chapter making a, a vow of curse to anyone in his army who eats anything until he destroys his enemies. And Jonathan doesn't even know about it. And Jonathan ends up uh, t- tasting some honey. And uh, then like Saul's going to kill his son Jonathan until the people put a stop to that. And then the next chapter we'll see uh, he, he starts committing another uh, major, major offense before God. And so Saul is starting to lose control little by little. And that's exactly what Samuel tells them is going to happen. If you look at verse 13, it says, Samuel said to Saul, you have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has appointed him as ruler over the people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. That's actually very similar to what Samuel's 
first message to Eli was. If you remember back then, it was, in essence, your family's not going to continue uh, as the priests, and, uh, and that will be taken over by another, by another family. Um, here you see in the kingship itself that transformation being taken. And then Samuel arises in verse 15, and he goes up uh, to Gilgal. So one of the difficult questions to ask is uh, what Saul should have done. Because you would think it makes sense to uh, ask the favor of the Lord before a battle and to worship God is, doesn't seem to be a bad thing. And, and so why should Saul have not done this? Um, Again, I think he's falling into the same trap that the children of Israel fell into a couple chapters earlier when they took the Ark of the Covenant out to battle with them, thinking that getting God on their side matters more than obeying God. And I think that's what Saul seems to think here. He seems to think that his own acts of piety in, in worship, even if they're not what God asked for, are more important than actually obeying what God says. And I think a lot of people can fall into that trap. I think we can fall into the trap of thinking, if I'm doing what I think is good for God, then surely God is more pleased with that than me robotically obeying what he says. And by the way, you can obey God without it being robotic. But that seems to be the, the dilemma that a lot of people draw up, is like there's, there's mindless obedience, and then there's from the heart doing what you think God would love. Um, and you come to find out, that God actually cares a whole lot about obedience. God actually cares a whole lot about you doing what his will is. Uh, you don't want it to become robotic. You don't want it to be mindless. You want obedience itself to be an act of devotion and love to God. And that's what Saul is going to be very clearly told here in a couple of chapters, again by Samuel. So when you get to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 16, I think you get a decent look at perhaps what Saul uh, should, sorry, it's chapter 15, uh, uh, what Saul should have been doing uh, when it came to his entire uh, reign as king. So in 1 Samuel 15, uh, Saul is supposed to go to battle, and he's supposed to wipe these people out. Uh, and he goes to battle, and he is victorious. But instead of wiping them out and not taking their possessions, what he does instead is he takes their possessions. He takes like a bunch of their cattle and their oxen, and he takes their king to basically be a trophy for them uh, as, a, as a, the spoil of war, and he starts bringing them back to Israel. Now, they were supposed to be wiped out, and he kind of did it, but he also didn't entirely do it. Even their oxen, like, they, he wasn't supposed to bring those things back. And so here's uh, how the conversation goes after the battle between Samuel and Saul. If you look at verse uh, 12, verse 13, it says, Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord, for I have carried out the command of the Lord. He's like, I did it. I was successful. I did exactly what God said. And Samuel says, really? What then is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? He's like, you did it. You weren't supposed to be taking cattle. And why do I hear them? Why, why do I hear sheep? And why do I hear oxen? Why do I hear livestock? And Saul says, uh, verse 15, well, they have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But the rest we've utterly destroyed. He says, well, the best stuff, we're not going to be wasteful. Surely God wouldn't want us to be. So we're going to bring that back and we're going to worship God with it. Brilliant, right? 
That way you get the best of both worlds. You get to destroy him and you get to worship God. And it's like, surely God will be pleased. I know it's not technically what he said, but surely he'll be very pleased with that. He's, there's nothing, there's no ill intention here. And then Samuel in verse 16, he says to Saul, wait, and let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. So Saul said, speak. And Samuel said, is it not true that though you were little in your own eyes, and were little in your, uh, and uh, you were made head of the tribes of Israel, and the Lord anointed you king over Israel. Remember, he was like hiding when he first was made king. He was little in his own eyes. He was humble, but then God still chose him, and God made him king. In verse 18, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go destroy uh, the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord, and I went on the mission which the Lord sent me, and I have brought back Agag, king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. He's like, I did destroy them. Sure, I brought back their king. And sure, we kept the best of their livestock, but the, the rest of it we destroyed. And then verse uh, 21, he blames the people. But the people took some of the spoil, the sheep and the oxen, the choicest uh, things uh, devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord God at Gilgal. And the answer he gets to that, again, it kind of seems reasonable. It's like, I mean, ultimately they're going to die anyway. Uh, but like, he, he's, he's kind of trying to, I think, logic his way into, I basically obeyed God and I also kind of did this, but this is a good thing to do. And what Samuel's response is, I think would have helped him earlier in chapter 13 before going into the battle. And I think it's something that will help us when we start to think about um, how it is we respond to the will of God. I know, I know as a parent, uh, there are times that this verse pops into my head when I have a child who has been disobedient and then tries to make up for it with like a kiss or something like that to let you know they still love you. It's like, well, I appreciate that you love me, but you'll have to obey. Uh, you know, I think you can, I have felt this passage more as a parent than I did earlier in life. Uh, but here's what Samuel says. Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and in sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than to sacrifice, and to heed what God said than the fat of rams. That's an important idea. What's more important, obeying God or offering worship to God? Obeying God. Like, that, that matters more. You, you can't substitute obedience for sacrifice. You can't substitute doing the will of God for worship. As a matter of fact, when you read through the prophetic literature, when you read through Isaiah, when you read through Amos and some of these books, you tend to find out that God sometimes hates their worship because their lives aren't right. He's like, I, I despise, I detest your assemblies and your solemn assemblies and your sacrifices and, and your offerings, but let justice roll like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Like, I would rather there be justice and righteousness and obedience in the land than a whole lot of great worship. I don't need that. What I need is for you to actually obey the voice of the Lord. That's what will matter. And Saul seems to not get that lesson. He seems to think, well, I can replace obedience with worship, and if anyone can do that, I am. I'm the king. And all of a sudden, he starts making the laws for God, as though he has equal or superior authority to God. And that mindset ends up being his ruin. 
as you continue to read through 1 Samuel, it destroys him. He does lose his kingdom. It is given to another. And uh, that pattern will continue throughout uh, the books of Kings and until the Babylonian captivity. And so what lessons can we learn from this? Well, I think it's important to remember that obedience is very, very important. Uh, Obedience is essential. Like, obedience is something God wants us to do, even when we can come up with reasons not to, even when it seems justified not to, even when it would be a whole lot easier not to. And as much as worship is good and valuable, worship is not a good substitute for obedience. And saying that you love God isn't a good substitute for obeying him. You should love God, absolutely. And you should worship God. And you should say you love God. And that matters. And that, that's, that's important. And that's valuable. And I think God does enjoy and love that. But he loves it if it truly is coming from the heart of a person who's trying to live for him. Not when it's coming as a substitute for doing his will. Uh, love worship's not a band-aid for disobedience. It's a really poor band-aid for disobedience. It doesn't work very well, and that's the mindset that God is trying to cultivate, and I think that's a lesson you can learn from 1 Samuel. So, uh, as we bring our lesson to a close, here is one question we could ask ourselves is, um, do I obey God, and do I do so even when I have reason not to? Do I do so even when I can easily rationalize and justify not doing it? Do I trust that obedience really is the right thing, even when I could see a vision or a path for my life where it'd be easier not to? I think that's what Saul saw. I think he had a vision of what could happen if I just disobey in this small thing. We could win the battle. We could have the people filled with confidence. I could be a great king. And like he saw this vision of greatness if he just disobeyed this little thing. And it ended up blowing up in his face. Um, when is it that we will substitute obedience for our own vision of the better way of doing things? Whenever you're seeing that, trust that God's way is probably better and his vision is probably more accurate. Uh, Obedience is an act of trust. Saul worshiped God, I think, because he didn't really trust God. He, he had to do it some better way. He had to do it some other way. And uh, we can fall into that trap, too, if we're not careful. And if there's anyone here who wants to obey God tonight by giving your life over to Christ, by obeying the gospel, by naming him as your Lord and giving your life to him in baptism, living for him from this day forward, please let that be known while we stand and as we sing.